Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 47 through 59. Hear these words spoken by Jesus. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning again. Um, if we have not met one another, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's, man, it's just such a gift to see your smiling faces um, or your sober faces, either way, just your faces uh, on a Sunday morning in the midst of the summer. And uh, so thanks for making gathering with God's people a priority and your uh, summer rhythms. Now, before we jump into today's text, um, I'm going to take a moment and then it's going to actually inform the way I pray for our text today. Uh, those of you who, who know us well here at Christ Community know that we at least try really hard <laughs> to carefully navigate issues of faith and politics. Now, we know that there can be a diversity of opinion, especially within the church around political issues, while we seek to have a unity in the faith, right? The one spirit, one baptism, and the work that God's doing together. And because of this, we avoid as much as possible the appearance of partisanship, and how we talk about our role in the common good, because we are passionate about our community, right? Our faith isn't just a personal thing. It impacts our community. It impacts how we show up in the world. And we certainly do not promote specific candidates or political parties from the pulpit. That is not what we feel called to do. However, as I'm sure you've heard by now, um, even through some of our communication as a church, there is this upcoming amendment vote in the state of Kansas, the Value Them Both Amendment um, which is going to give a direct vote to citizens of Kansas. And this is coming up on August 2nd. And for those of you who live in Kansas and who are engaged here, um, or for the reality, frankly, we, we are not just a Missouri church, right? We have three campuses on the Kansas side. And we thought it had value to bring that up together. Now, some of you are probably nodding along quite content, um, <laughs> Others of you um, may be confused or even concerned that we're talking about this. Um, 
especially as we choose to talk about this from this kind of this moment in our worship gathering. Either way, I just want you to know I understand, we understand, and please know that we did some serious wrestling as a team before even deciding to take time out of the service. And you've already heard, once again, some communication earlier. Because again, this is not something we normally do. Even though our faith touches every nook and cranny, there's nothing that's off limits for Jesus. We don't always take these times and these spaces within our service. We have for various issues, but today we believe it's significant enough moment for residents of Kansas who go to our church that we want to spend a moment in prayer surrounding the vote and all those that this issue, all the people that this issue affects. So if you have questions or concerns, I want you to know like you're thinking, man, what in the world? If you really have deep concerns, just know that I'm here for you to come. You can chat with me. I'd love to listen, to learn, to walk alongside of you and to process together Um, because we mean that. We want to be a community that's holistically living out the gospel in every nook and cranny of our lives. And, uh, And that's not always easy, and Christians don't always agree as to what that looks like, but we want to do that together nonetheless. So with that in mind, I just want to invite you to pray with me, would you? Okay. Our Father who is in heaven, Our Lord Jesus, who sits on the throne, Holy Spirit, who is here among us and uniquely within us, you invited us to be a part of a mission to protect the vulnerable in all of life and bring justice to our hurting and broken world. With that mission in mind, we grieve the tragic loss of so many vulnerable unborn children who have inherent value and worth as human beings who bear your image. With that mission in mind, we contend for those vulnerable children who are in the adoption and foster care system, praying that you would establish the work of local partners like Care Portal, like we're engaged in here and across campuses, who are involved in supporting those children. With that mission in mind, we contend for vulnerable women who are in crisis pregnancy, who are rightfully scared and anxious. Please be their comfort, we ask. Help us to be a part of that comfort. And we pray again that you would establish the work of local partners like Advice and Aid who are involved in supporting women and men in the midst of that dynamic. With that mission in mind, we contend for those for whom the topic of abortion is not abstract. It's not just an issue, but it's a deeply personal and deeply painful one, especially those in our church family who know that heartbreak and the complexity firsthand. We confess any church hurt caused by the church on this personal and painful issue, and we ask that you would be near to all and that they would see you as a God who weeps with them and calls them your beloved. With that mission in mind, we confess that your mission will not ultimately be accomplished through any sort of amendments or legislations or political party, nor does your kingdom come through force or power, but that you alone can bring justice and healing to our world ultimately. Help us, though, think creatively about the various ways we can seek justice for all of your children, from womb to tomb, from conception to death, whatever the outcome of the vote on August 2nd. And so with that mission in mind, we're grateful to live in a country where we do have the opportunity to participate in our legal system. We pray that we, your church, would take advantage of that opportunity by researching carefully this amendment and considering prayerfully seeking your wisdom and insight above all else. And so with that mission in mind, please give us the courage and humility to have respectful face-to-face conversations with people who we disagree with. 
with that mission in mind, please give us and all those who prayed for a profound hope in your coming kingdom. Help us look to the day when all just injustice will bow. All tears will be wiped away by the nail-scarred hands of our King, our one and true King, to whom we give all allegiance, whom we will worship alongside people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every political persuasion, every socioeconomic status, every era of history, man and woman, born and unborn. And so guide us now in and through your word that we might be shaped more into a people who love what you love and live that love toward all. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of his spirit. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. All right, a little warning. If you're like, I need more warnings. Uh, a little warning. Uh, today's sermon is about death. Uh, which none of us wants to talk about. Interestingly enough, uh, there's a new study or a more recent study that came out that shows that actually our brains shield us from the very thought of death. And the way that our brains often interpret death is as, as an, unfor an unfortunate event that happens to other people. Isn't that fascinating? Like your brain literally shields you from the thought of death, interpreting death more often than not, as an unfortunate event that happens to other people. They did this in an experiment where they had a group of volunteers and they showed them a series of images, pictures of people's faces, and then they would put words with these faces. Okay, and then half of the time, the words that connected with these images were words of death, like funeral or burial. And then every now and then, they would show them an image of their own face with these words of death. What was fascinating is they noticed in the brain as they were doing scans as this was happening, the predicting center shuts down in our brain. Fascinating, huh? So suddenly your brain's like, you don't have to worry about the future. <laughs> oh, your death? No, 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 no. Don't think about that. Isn't that astounding? When other people's, you know, images pop up and there's associations of death, you think, oh, sadness and fear and all these. But then as soon as your picture pops up and it's associated with death and any sort of word, your brain just shuts down that predicting center. And it interprets death as an unfortunate event that happens to other people. Your brain is literally trying to get you to not think about death. Isn't that great? <laughs> and here, we can all sit in here because we're rational people and we'll say to ourselves, oh, I know I'm going to die. But the way we think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, or frankly, the way that our subconscious interprets our reality is more often than not, we consider it a reality that unfortunately happens to others. And the younger you are, the more you think that death feels mythical, foreign, far away, and possibly impossible. And what's fascinating is that throughout history, our brains kind of having this uh, way of shutting down, connecting death with our own future was a way of survival. And because mainly we had so much death around us, like you didn't avoid death. Like when someone died, you would have, you know, this, the person would be staying in your home. Maybe people would come and visit and actually weep for a week on end. Like there were all these signs of death around you. If you lived on a farm, you didn't eat without death, right? So death was everywhere. And so your brain and its desire to push away the thoughts of death was constantly confronted with death. And it gave you more of a balanced perspective on how to navigate life. But now in our culture that's very death phobic, psychologists and sociologists are very concerned with our 
unrealistic perspective of death in our culture. Arnaud Wisman, he was a psychologist at the University of Kent, says that we used to have all of these ways in which that would remind us of death, and now we're thinking of more ways to avoid the very thought of death. He calls this the escape treadmill. And some of you are going to know this all too well. I know this all too well. It's basically anything you do to busy yourself to stop thinking about your eventual death. (laughs) It could be overwork. You work yourself so busy that you forget that death is looming large. You consume yourself so much with your device or your phone that you get distracted with all these wonderful realities that make you feel immortal. The same could be with exercising. And we have all kinds of tactics in our culture. You've got all sorts of surgeries that help hide the signs of aging. We are a youth-centered culture more than probably any other culture in history. So much of our culture is seeking to avoid the thought of death. We all do it. But here's the problem. It's a coping mechanism. (laughs) It doesn't actually solve the problem, right? The problem is death, not thinking about death. I don't know anybody who's like, you know what, if I could just stop thinking about death, that's fine. No, nobody wants to die. (laughs) And what's wonderful is that Jesus comes here in our text and he says, listen, I've got one way that can keep you from death. All that avoidance of death that you actually have hardwired into your brain, I've got a way for that to happen. And it's, of course, centered in who he is. You're at church, so that shouldn't surprise you at all that I would say something like that. But here's what's fascinating to me. Because in the midst of this, if you know anything about Jesus, this is the one who says, I'm going to keep you from death. He dies. (laughs) Like one of the worst deaths in history. Horrific, horrendous, awful, gut-turning. I mean, just painful deaths. So that's fascinating. And then secondarily, he doesn't stay dead three days later, supposedly, according to 500-some eyewitnesses who literally physically saw him alive and experienced him alive over a period of time, said he came back to life. So yes, he died, but death didn't have the final word, which I also find really fascinating. And here's the deal. What he says here, as a living, breathing, fully God, fully human person, What he says here gets people to want to kill him. So death and life, life and death, it's all over the place, okay? And it's really fascinating what God has to say in Christ for you and for me and this longing, this desire to avoid death. This is why we've entitled our series, The Signs of Life, as we're walking through the gospel account of John, because Jesus, looking over the shoulder of one of Jesus' best friends, John, Jesus, he's going after the life we long to live, the life we were designed to live, and he's actually approaching and confronting some of our strongest fears, that of death. And for us to see that in greater detail today, we're going to look in our text. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles or your Bible apps. I want you to look with me. I'm not putting all the passage up on the screen, so I'm expecting you to get acquainted to the text. I think that's healthy and good for us as a community. But some of the passages will be up there as well. But please, I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, a physical one, we've got some copies back there next to Carlos. Carlos, would you raise your hand? Oh, yeah, there he is. Um, Please take that as a gift from us. We love God's word and we want everybody to have a copy of it. Okay, so as we are here in John chapter 8, and we're going to be anchoring ourselves here in verse 51 in a minute. Let me give you a little bit of the context. Jesus has been teaching 
up in the temple, and he's been walking through like how he is the light of life. He's been setting the stage how through him and becoming an apprentice of his will actually know real freedom. And there's even some folks, some Jewish religious leaders who are intrigued by Jesus. And even we saw last week, some were believing what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus just keeps pressing. And then, you know, all like all good table setters and, you know, cohesive builders, he calls them, you know, the spawn of Satan. So that really helps the conversation uh, progress and feel really good. You know, super kind, welcoming words. No, you guys are the children of the devil. Oh, cool. We're friends. So that continues to progress. And the tension builds to a point when finally these folks who are kind of intrigued in Jesus, who are beginning to believe him, finally say two things to really distance Jesus and discount what he says. They both use an ethical or an ethnic argument as well as a moral or a religious argument. They say, hey, you're a Samaritan, so not a, in this in particular culture, in this history, in that moment, a Jewish person was the one who has entrusted all the promises of God. So ethnically, purity in that particular perspective was a one, this is why they keep going back to Abraham, by the way. This was one perspective they had, that if you were going to be a person of God, if you were going to belong to God, you had to be ethnically pure as a Jewish person. That's their perspective, not Jesus's, but that was their perspective. So they're trying to distance Jesus from them by saying he's a Samaritan. Jesus doesn't even play that game. He doesn't even go there. But then the second thing they say is they say, you've got a demon. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with someone where they start to say, you got demons, but that starts to shut things down too. Um, doesn't set you up well. This is clearly an argument that's starting to take place to which Jesus says, I don't have a demon. Okay, <laughs> just look at your punctuation here. The calmness, when somebody's like, you've got a demon, and she's like, I don't have a demon. Like, that's so calm. <laughs> and so if we, frankly, just as the Christian community, if we just stopped there and learned a lot from what Jesus did, not just what he said, but how he shows up in the world, we could learn a whole lot here. Like Jesus responding to his enemies, coming at him, calling him all sorts of things, making all sorts of accusations. And he's like, no, nah, I don't have a demon. Like, you're not going to get me riled up about this. Lord have mercy. May that be more true of the church. May we, may, have, may we have that kind of posture in the midst of accusation and pain. He has the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he's like, listen, I've come here to honor my father. Even though you're dishonoring me, the father, he's honoring me. And then he lands the plane. Look with me, chapter 8, verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. So truly, truly, you're going to see this, that phrase show up again and again. We've already talked about it week in and week out. But if you're new, this is a way for Jesus to make a claim solely based on who he is. He's not pointing to anyone else, anywhere else. He's saying, because of who I am, I'm going to speak on my own authority. Truly, truly, I say to you, and then he goes on to say, hey, the one key responsibility. If you want to avoid death, if you want to be protected from death, keep a hold of my word. Hold fast to it. This is a promise Jesus makes. Don't miss that. It's not a suggestion. It's not an interesting claim. It's a promise, and it's very much central to the hope of the Christian faith. What Jesus says here is essential for you 
and for me. And listen, if we believed what Jesus said there, let's just take a pause for a minute. If we believed that if anyone who keeps his word will never see, if we really believed that, we would move our schedules, we would cling to Jesus's word, we would be getting up early, we'd be staying up late, studying what Jesus has said and how he has spoken and guiding us into all life. If we really believed that, we would hunger and thirst for more of Jesus's word. We would always make the gathering of God's people that are centering around the word center to the rhythms of our life. If we really believed this, but before we go there, why should we believe him? If we really believed it, it will radically reorient how we go about our lives, every single one of us. But why should we believe what he has to say? That's real, right? That's the question. Well, luckily, that's where the text goes next. And I love it because some of these religious folks, and frankly, they are way smarter than most of us in this room, transparently. Like these are really, really smart folks, but they are really feeling what Jesus just said and not in a good way, okay? They're like, man, this guy's in his mid-30s. He's coming in here and he's saying, if we keep his word, we're not gonna taste death. What about Abraham, right? As the text continues on, you heard it read. What about Abraham? This is the one that God actually plucked And he said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations. And then Abe died. And then what about the prophets? Man, talk about courage. Talk about zeal. Talk about commitment to God's purposes in the world. They would confront kings. They would confront political powers, religious powers, the very people that would even kill them in order to say, don't forget what God's doing in the world. Don't forget who he is. And then they died. And you're here standing before us, mid-30s, out of nowhere, we don't know where you came from, and you're saying if we hold on to your word, we're never going to taste death? And then Jesus responds. He's like, man, listen, I know you're asking, who am I trying to make myself out to be? But here's the reality. I'm not making myself out to be anyone. God's making much of me. He's my father. He continues to show up in the ways that I'm doing these extraordinary things in front of you that you don't want to pay any attention to. He's given me insight into the word. I am God become flesh. I'm here before you. And, I'm, and I could say, listen, maybe you understand more than I do, but then I'd be a liar. And that's what he says in the text. If I start saying what you're saying, then I would be a liar. And I don't want to be a liar. Got to love that logic. That's just, that's just brilliant, brilliant argumentation. If I said what you said, I'd be a dishonest person. And I don't want to do that. Do you want me to be? You don't want to be that, right? And he goes, listen, you keep talking about Abraham. But listen, Abraham, if he were here, he would receive me in what I have to say. Actually, check this out. Abraham actually had the understanding that God was going to do something like this. And check this out. Actually, Abraham saw it. He imagined that this was going to take place. He knew that through one of his offspring, God was going to bless the world and it was going to blow people's minds. And you keep talking about our God. Well, our God is with me. And then they're like, yeah, but you're so young. (laughs) Once again, they're like, you're not even 50. Now, some people think because... 50 was a common age for like political or religious leadership that showed communi- or maturity or communication. And they're like, but you're so young. You're not even 50. And this is like the mic drop moment, friends. Like when we're asking like, why should we believe what Jesus has to say about death? This is where he goes. 
chapter 8, verse 58. Look with me in your Bibles. He says, truly, truly, there he goes again. I say to you, so this is based upon who he is. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, and man, just go down to verse 59. <laughs> the temple is still in construction. I mean, it's still, it's glorious at this point, but it's still being finished. And there are stones around and they're not like, you know, we should really fact check this guy. Um, they're not talking about killing him. They just pick up stones at that moment. There's no trial. There's just mob rule and the desire to murder him on the spot. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They didn't misunderstand. It's not like, man, if they just had further conversation. Man, this is just a classic, you know, he said, she said kind of thing. If we just sit down, I'll walk you through it. No, they knew what he said and Jesus knew what he said. Jesus was claiming to be God. So why, why should we believe what Jesus has to say about death? What does John, as he's writing out this testimony, where he's writing all the way down in John chapter 21, he's like, I want you to know who Jesus is and I want you to be able to believe in him. What is he trying to say here? What he, G, John is communicating about Jesus that he himself saw Jesus say to these religious leaders is this, only if Jesus is the eternal God can he keep us from eternal death. Only. And what you see on display here is actually the image of our four-chapter gallery painting that's out there. When you walk into this space, you're walking into a story, and it's the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. The eternal God pursuing broken humanity and all of his creation to make them whole. And I want you to understand, the reason I've got this up here is because this language is really crucial. Before Abraham was, I am. If it were just about communicating that Jesus existed before Abraham, he could have easily said, before Abraham was, I was. If it's just about saying, hey, I was back there at that particular moment, then he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. And even that would be considered blasphemous. Even that would be considered categorically dangerous and worthy of death by religious court. But that's not all that he's saying. He's not just saying he existed before Abraham. What is the words he says? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, before you start jumping to the biblical narrative, for those of you who know your Bibles well, you need to understand too, this is communicating the same thing that God has communicated about himself throughout history, that he is the ever-present God. He is the I am, not just I was and not just I will be, but right here, right now, in the present, in time with you, with me, with everyone who calls upon his name. He is the ever-present God. He's both over time, and this is where we step in the midst of the eternal and the glorious God and we come with like limited perspective as to what we can understand as creatures, not the creator. He's over time, but he simultaneously steps into time. Before Abraham was, I am. And I just want you to imagine this. I can't help myself. But in this moment where Jesus is having this dialogue, which is maybe a generous way to put it, with these religious leaders, as he says that statement, before Abraham was, I am. He goes back to the dawn of creation in his imagination, thinking of how the earth was without form and void, bringing order out of chaos, not just witnessing it, but being the very agent of God's creative power in the world. And then as sin and death broke in, as Adam and Eve turned their back on God, in that moment when death breaks in, he goes, oh, but not forever, death. I'm coming. I've got a word I'm going to say when I get to that temple mount. Just wait. 
I think about when he's standing there and he's walking with Noah, when Noah's called blameless and he knows that he's got to flood the whole world because of the violence and the vitriol and the disregard for God. And he's holding up Noah and guiding him in redemption. And he goes, one day, I'm not going to flood the earth with waters. I'm going to bring a deep redemption that goes after the hearts of human beings. I think about when God's walking in Christ with Abraham and he's like, Abraham, I'm going to do something through you. Yeah, I know you're really old, like old, old, but you're going to have a kid. And somehow through that one kid, not like a bunch of kids, but like one kid, I'm going to create a nation. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to do something not just for them. Yes, it's going to be for them, but it'll also be through them for everyone. And Jesus is like, oh man, I can't wait for that day when I'm on the Temple Mount and I'm going to tell him before even Abraham, Abe, you know, and we're talking, you know, but one day I'm going to say this in front of these religious leaders. It's going to be recorded and they're going to know. And then you go down to Moses, the next prophet who comes up, who leads God's people out of slavery through the Red Sea into the wilderness, all because he had this burning bush kind of moment. And when God says, I want you to go tell them that I am sent you. Even in that moment, Jesus is like, I'm going to bring that up again. Before Abraham was, I am. This echoing of God's presence with his people. And then as his people went into the promised land, and then as they were exiled because they turned their backs on God. And over and over again, Jesus watching the movement of time as the Apostle Paul says later in the book of Galatians, the letter to the church in Galatia, at the right time. Jesus came. Jesus, knowing all the rich tapestry and the history and the context to set up for such a loaded statement. And with the joy to finally proclaim, before Abraham was, I am. And if you keep my word, you'll never taste death. He's been holding that for generations upon generations to be able to proclaim. Now to generation and generation thereafter. That's who he is. And they got it. This is God who's come to speak life to anyone who will receive. Oh, but what is this death that he's come to protect us from? And I think this is where we start to misunderstand Jesus so easily. And you see it in the many interpretations of the gospel or the good news of what God and Christ has come to do. Sometimes we can think that death means the deliverance from all discomfort deliverance from all suffering, and even deliverance from physical death. The reality is, is Jesus' life was defined by discomfort. His life was defined by suffering. Man of sorrows. And he physically died. Now he rose again. But what we see in Jesus, we should not think we are exempt from ourselves. So maybe, just maybe, as awful as those things are, that's not the worst kind of death available. You see, there is a death that's worse than death, as there is a life that's better than living. And right now, the two kiss each other. They touch. They're intermingled. What do I mean? Today, even the worst elements of death are still touched by a twinge of life, right? This is what God calls his common grace. He allows it to reign on the just and the unjust, Another aspect of his common grace is the spirit of God alive in the people of God, even in the midst of a broken world that writhes against his purposes in the world. Even in the midst of the darkest of death, there's a twinge of life in this time between. But same with life. 
Even in the most beautiful glimpses of life, there's still a twinge of death because the greatest of experiences finally expire. The deepest forms of love still come with a shadow of doubt, a shadow of fear, insecurity, that haunts even the best of moments with the most treasured of people in our lives. But there is one day where death and life will be forever separated. There is a day where death and life will be given their own domains. There is a day where death and life will no longer touch each other. And the place of death is where those who have rejected the author of life will be granted to dwell. Those who have rejected the very source of life now finally will experience an existence devoid of all life that comes from the one who is the source of life. Somehow in the mystery of God, although he is present in all places, his absence will be most palpably felt where God will fully give us over to those who've rejected God to the full, the selfish desires of our heart and all the destructive nature that comes with that. Finally and fully giving us over to a darkness we cannot fathom, a loneliness we cannot begin to feel such that if we felt the full force of concentrated death, it would crush our souls. That's the death he came to save us from. He came to deliver it. And yes, even deliver us from some of that death now because doesn't that death, the twinge of death we feel now is the, the eternal death breaking in. And here's the beauty of walking with Jesus. Jesus does, when we walk in his life, and in his word, he does actually deliver us from some death. The discomfort that comes from living in sin. There is a discomfort that comes with that. Is there not? There is a suffering that comes from engaging in wickedness. That is also a suffering he delivers us from. We may suffer for righteousness sake or rightness, living rightly in line with his purposes. But when Jesus gets a hold of your life, you don't suffer for wickedness sake, which is painful. And... He will deliver you from dying an early physical death due to foolishness. That is also a possibility. So there is some deliverance that comes from death and destruction. Yes, now. But it's not all discomfort. It's not all suffering. It's not all physical death. Not until the day he comes and finally separates the two where those who have embraced the author of life go into the land of life. And those who have rejected the very source of life will experience the land they've chosen devoid of life itself. This is what Jesus offers. Life in him. And because, listen, the, Jesus is saying, listen, you're seeing my... And think about this at this point in the, the gospel account of John. Think about this in the history of Jesus. They're standing there. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen yet. Jesus is saying, you've seen what I've done. You're hurt, you've heard what I've said. And I'm telling you right now that I am very God of very God. I am before Abraham, I am. And that was to be enough for them to trust him. But for us, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, 
Not just knowing that Jesus has said it, but hearing from countless others the testimony that's been recorded. Those who rejected Jesus on the cross ran for cover. Then three days later suddenly experienced what they said was Jesus physically alive. Such that they were willing to go to their physical death. Knowing that their physical death is in comparison to nothing compared to the life they have with the one who's defeated death. We have that. So how much more should we believe what Jesus has to say here? So what do we do? If Jesus really is the eternal God who can keep us from eternal death and even, yes, remnants of that eternal death here in this life, there's only one thing to do and that's to get after his words of life. That's it. Get after his words of life. That's why we keep talking about the Bible around here. (laughs) Otherwise, we're just talking death. And I want to be clear too. I mean, there's a lot of, depending on what translation you've got, there's a lot of red in your Bibles, right? Red is good. Jesus' specific words are important. They're still mediated by the, the, uh, the gospel witnesses account. But it's not just the red letters. Jesus didn't speak and say, now I'm going to have you go make a hierarchy. Actually, what Jesus does is he holds up Genesis through Malachi by his frequent quotes. And he doesn't say, just Moses said. He says, God says fascinating the way the authority that Jesus holds on the Hebrew scriptures. And then he'll go on later to say, all of scripture is pointing to me. And then he actually commissions apostolic leaders, these sent ones with a special authority to carry forth his witness, which is where we get the New Testament. So really, all that we hold on to the Bible is based upon Jesus' resurrection, his authority. Because he defeated death, he must know life. And if he knows life and he says life is found in Genesis through Revelation, I'm holding on to that. That's why we hold on to God's word. But what does it mean when Jesus says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, keeps Well, it's important when you go back to the, you got to think of once again, the Hebrew mindset. The key word for hearing was the Shema, right? This was hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hearing was not just physically allowing words to reverberate off your eardrum. It's not just receiving noise. It always showed up in the body. Always. Hearing and obedience are the same word. Crucial to understand. You cannot know and not do. Otherwise, that's a sign you don't know it all. Don't know it all. You might feel like a know-it-all, but you don't know it all, right? So what does this mean? At minimum, it means reading, listening, and gathering with the people of God as often as you can to center in on the Word of God. Personally, that means consistent and regular opportunity to engage God's Word. Now, we live at this time post the printing press where we have the wonderful gift to have God's word available to us and an extraordinary, you know, opportunity. And then not to mention just on your phone. You've got all kinds of different versions, translations, and so on. You can engage it so deeply. It's not just about if you can. (laughs) I can do a lot of things. It's the fact that you get engaged in God's word on a daily basis, friends, personally. Secondly, get some friends around you who also care about what God has to say in his life in you and that they're speaking that into you alongside. If you just have friends who are like, oh man, that's so outdated. If you've got friends that are constantly in the midst of crisis and you're longing for someone to give you some guidance and they come and they say, just go with what you feel. You're gonna follow your friend. 
Make sure you got a couple friends in your life that are passionate about God's word and seeing the life of the word show up in the life that you live. If you don't, that's a dangerous place to be. I'm not saying just be friends with other followers of Jesus who care about God's word, but if you don't have any, that's a dangerous spot. And then thirdly, listen, there's been a lot of talk about Sabbath lately, right? That's good. And I love me a day of rest, okay? It's biblical. It's always fascinated me that it's like the one out of the Ten Commandments were like, oh, that's been fulfilled. Well, what about murder, though? Like, <laughs> like what about lying and all those other ones? Like, what, why this one? And they're like, oh, we're not human. We're Christians. No, that's not true. Um, we need a day of rest. But what we've often turned that into is a day for me. And that's not what it is most designed for. Then it becomes formation in selfishness. Now, there's a good point to delight, but always throughout the Sabbath, if you look across the biblical narrative and you study the word Sabbath, it always had a connection to God's people still being formed by God's word somewhere. That's a key component of the Sabbath is sitting around the Torah, hearing God's people gathered around God's word. And so for me, I want to hi highlight, if you want to take a day of rest, make it Sunday and make sure that church is a regular part of that if you want to know life. Now, for the Jewish people, it was Saturday. In the midst of that, some of you are like, why Saturday, Sunday? This is such a tangent, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Saturday, this was a oftentimes the Christians would still gather in the synagogues on Saturday. But in the midst of that, by receiving Jesus the Messiah, many of the Jewish religious leaders looking at their fellow brothers and sisters who are Jewish, who embraced the Messiah as Jesus, said, you can't be anymore. And so they kicked him out. And so they couldn't meet in the synagogue on Saturday. They often would meet on Sunday, a moment where they would also remember that Jesus rose again on Sunday. So it became a double whammy. It was by pragmatic and theological reasons that they would come together. But what would they come together to do to remember the gospel? And so that became their place of rest, development, and growth. Okay, so it's not just learning information, though. As much as it's about listening and learning and reading and growing... It's also about surrendering always. I think it's important that Jesus doesn't say, you know what, if anyone just keeps their own truth, then they'll be protected from death. No. He says, if you keep my word, it's found in him. Now, whenever it is found in us, it's because it reverberates with what he's already said. So if you've got those spaces where you're like, oh God, I feel like you're guiding me in this and it's completely contrary to his word, you should be like, oh, be quiet, me. <laughs> Surrender. If you want life, that is. Because life is not promised in what you feel. Life is promised in keeping his word. Once again, hold fast to the promise. And then thirdly, apply it in every aspect of your life. When it, becomes, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to a marriage pr perspective spouse or the dynamics you're experiencing in your marriage, when it comes to friendship, when it comes to politics, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to finances, when it comes to neighboring, when it comes to forgiveness, go to God's word first. I'm not saying don't do good science. I'm not saying don't engage in healthy psychology or sociology, but oftentimes, even if it's not explicit in scripture, the values and the purposes of God's kingdom do give us parameters on where we can go and guide us in godly wisdom by the power of the spirit and it's really all three of those see if you just have knowledge you get puffed up right paul talks about that you, you can become super you know puffed up like just tons of hot air right uh, tons of hot air 
and nobody wants to be around you because you know a lot of stuff, but nobody, everybody knows you're not surrendering. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They knew better than everybody. But what, they, what, would, did, what did Jesus say? Oh, you care about the, the tithing of these little tiny things, but you've forgotten justice. They knew a lot, but man, they weren't surrendering nearly as much as they knew. They weren't applying except for in really strategic spots that gained them more power. It's all three of those. You can't surrender unless you know, <laughs> unless you're just surrendering to the void. You can't apply unless you're learning. So you, yes, need to grow in understanding, but simultaneously the Spirit of God's got to guide you in surrender in application. You see, one of the most dangerous things for you and for me is not murder. It's not adultery. It's not lying. It's not financial malfeasance. All these are terrible, to be clear. <laughs> not condoning any of them. But the worst thing you can do is ignore God's word. Because without God's word, then his life will not confront your death. Without God's word, you're not called to repentance and the opportunity to experience wholeness and forgiveness and growth and what it means to be truly human. One of the most dangerous things that you and I can do is to ignore it, to, to, to let it sit off distance or to, to distance ourselves from certain passages because frankly, they just sit with us the wrong way. To make gathering with God's people an extra when we get everything else on our calendar situated. Thinking that one day when I finally get my life together, I'll get into the rhythms. Listen, life doesn't come by accident. When you feel like death is when you need to put yourself in the place of life. Don't wait. You show me someone who's not engaged in God's word, who doesn't have friends that are encouraging them in some way and are not gathered with the church. I, I don't care whether they call themselves a Christian or not. A lot of people call themselves all kinds of things. Put them on their little handles on Twitter and all this type of jazz. That's not what matters what you call yourself. No matter what you call yourself, if this, if the word of God is not central in your life, it will not be long before God himself will not be central in your life. I've seen it too many times. And frankly, I feel it in my own life. I'm not, this isn't just a me to you moment. This is an us kind of reality under God's word. And you may say to yourself, you know what? I never stoned Jesus. Well, sure. But that's, that's not because we're more passionate about life than them. It just might mean that we're more apathetic about death. We've gotten used to it. Now, some of us may wonder, like, where do I even begin? Where do I start? Well, this was wonderful. This wasn't planned, but man, God's strategic uh, providence is wonderful. Um, we have a class called How to Read the Bible for Yourself, okay? Some of you are like, I don't know where to begin. Well, there's an answer for you, okay? On August 3rd at 6.30 p.m., we're going to spend some hours diving into God's Word, learning how to read the Bible in an appropriate manner so you're not just plucking out a passage and said, yeah, Judas did this, so so should I. Wait a second, settle down. Not a guy you want to emulate, okay? Um, <laughs> No, how do we read God's word thoughtfully? But then secondly, and maybe even more importantly, why we should trust it. That might be a barrier for some. So I'd encourage you to come out to that class. Don't put that off. If you don't know how to navigate God's word, make that a priority as much as if you just got a terminal cancer diagnosis and this was the only way to survive. Because life is at risk here, friends. This is why we created the formed life pathway that always involves a scripture passage every day to engage because there's where life is. 
That's why in community groups, more often than not, we spend time processing the sermon or whatever God's word was before us on Sunday, not to get just new information, but go deeper into surrender and application as a community. That's why in children's ministries, we seek to actually train them. Yes, in bite-sized chunks, depending on where they are in their development, the beauties and the richness of God's word. Because listen, that's where life is, by the power of his spirit. And listen, Jesus came offering light in the midst of darkness. He's come offering freedom in the midst of enslavement. And he's saying, listen, I know you all want to avoid death. Here's how. Hold fast to my word. And he longs for us to trust him. Now, this isn't a quick thing. Anybody who's walked with Jesus for any length of time knows that the best way to describe the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And on the far side, listen, you find, you find a Christian who's been walking with Jesus for years and they're knocking on death's door. Those are some of the most important people in the world. They've been walking with Jesus. And even though, here's why, because they are the living paradox. Even though they are staring death in the face in those moments when they are surrendering to Jesus, continuing to apply Jesus and walk with Jesus, it's in those moments, it seems like they are embodying more life than anybody who's 25. And then when they step through death, they're going to know a life that's better than living. They become a testimony even to our own hearts and minds. That's what's available to us. When you get after Jesus' words of life, it may not protect you from every discomfort. Frankly, it'll guide you into deeper suffering at times. And yes, you may even physically die. But it'll protect you from a death that's worse than death. And when you get after Jesus' words of life, you're going to find the life of the word gets after you and he won't let you go. Will you trust him? Even when your brain wants to avoid death, just say, hey brain, I've got the way. It's right here in Jesus, in his word. Let's do that.